Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon and this is episode one, The Caged Bear. So today in the first of two setup or setting the scene episodes, we're going to start off with a high level look at the geography of Russia, pointing out the main features such as the different landscapes, mountains, rivers and the main cities all of which will hopefully serve as a useful backdrop for future episodes. And I'll also put a couple of maps on the website, which is historyofrussia, or one word, dot podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, dot com. And then we'll move on to cover how in the past, and still today, the geography of Russia has shaped the country's history, politics, ambitions and fears. Oh, and before I start, something I forgot to mention last week in my introductory episode. If you want to get in touch with a question or a comment, then you can either do that via a message or a rating on whichever podcast service you listen to, or you can drop me an email at nordicworld@outlook.com, which, thinking about it, is probably better for questions. So why nordicworld@outlook.com? Well, I produce another podcast, Nordic World, which is kind of like a poor man's and I don't know if you if you listen to Melvin Bragg's In Our Time. Well, well, my Nordic World podcast is a poor man's version of that for the Nordic countries. And the reason I'm using that email is I just want to keep all of my podcasting emails in one place. Okay, explanations over. Let's go. So. Where is Russia located? Well, if you look at a globe or a map of the world, it's hard to miss it really. It occupies nearly all of northern Eurasia and it's absolutely massive, coming in at just over 17 million square kilometres or 6.5 million square miles. It's the largest country in the world, twice the size of the United States, and it spreads itself across 11 time zones and over 4,000 miles, nearly 7,000 kilometres from the Kaliningrad exclave in the west across to the Bering Strait in the east. And from north to south, the country stretches from the Russian Arctic Islands to the Caspian Sea, spanning about 2,800 miles or 4,500 kilometres at its maximum. And in the past, during the Tsarist Empire, and the Soviet Union, it was even bigger, 23 million square kilometres at its greatest extent. 
as it included several countries that are now independent, such as Finland, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, the Caucasus, the Baltic States and the Central Asian Republics. And of course we mustn't forget the Alaska Purchase, or Seward's Folly as it's called, which saw the sale of Alaska from Russia to the United States in 1867 for $7.2 million, or put another way, two and a half cents an acre. And the reason for that sale? Well, because defending and maintaining that vast territory would have been almost impossible, and B, simply because it needed the money. To get a further indication of Russia's size, I apologise for banging on about size, but as everyone knows, size is important. Two of Russia's federal areas, the Sakha Republic, uh, which is also known as Yakutia, and the Krasnoyarsk Krai, and Krai spelled K-R-A-I and roughly translated equals land or territory, are around the size of India and the Democratic Republic of the Congo respectively both gigantic, gigantic countries in their own right. Today, Russia has land boundaries with 14 countries. To the west, Norway, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland and Belarus. To the south, Ukraine, Georgia and Azerbaijan. And to the east, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, the People's Republic of China and North Korea. Seawise, and I had to well, I didn't look it up actually, but I thought to myself, is that even a word? But it will do. Seawise, it is bordered in the north by the Arctic Ocean, in the east by the Pacific, in the south by the Black and Caspian Seas, and in the west by the Baltic Sea. And yet, only a small amount of this coastline has been and is useful, most of it being either too remote or being frozen for several months of the year. And we'll look at this in a bit more detail a bit later on. Most of the country lies in between 50 and 70 degrees latitude and west to east can be usefully divided into three big chunks. So first off you have European Russia, then you have Siberia and finally the Russian Far East. And then from north to south we can further segment Russia into five main distinct zones that are defined by landscape type and climate. So first of all we have the Arctic tundra, then we have the forest uh, zones, two different belts, the coniferous taiga and the deciduous broadleaf. Then we have forest steppe, the steppe itself which is very similar to the US prairies, and finally in the deep south a thin strip of desert. And talking of forests, interestingly enough, Russia has the world's largest reserve of forest and is second only to the Amazon rainforest in the amount of carbon dioxide that it absorbs. Mountain ranges, including the Caucasus, the Altai, the Verkhoyansk range and the volcanoes of the Kamchatka Peninsula, are found along the southern borderlands and the Russian Far East. But the majority of the country is a series of fairly flat plains, being broken only by the Ural Mountains, which stretch north-south along the nominal border between Europe and Asia. Russia has thousands of rivers and inland bodies of water, providing it with one of the world's largest surface water resources. 
Its lakes alone contain approximately one quarter of the world's liquid fresh water, and one of them on its own, Lake Baikal, the deepest lake in the world, contains over one-fifth of the world's fresh surface water. And of those rivers, or the approximately 100,000 rivers, the Volga, the Dnieper and the Don, all in European Russia, are the most well known because of their major role as transport links throughout Russia's history. And then there are the major Siberian rivers, icebound for long periods and prone to flooding during the spring thaw, which are, going west to east, the Ob, which is the seventh longest river in the world, the Yenisei, or Yenisei, which is the fifth longest river in the world, and finally the Lena, or Lena, which is the 11th longest river in the world. So today, Russia's major cities include Moscow, or Moscow for our American friends, uh, with a population of around about 10,300,000. Second is St. Petersburg, with a population of around 5 million, followed by Novosibirsk, which means New Siberia, with 1.5 million, Yekaterinburg, 1,350,000 odd, and finally Nizhny Novgorod, uh, 1,300,000 there or thereabouts. Now Nizhny Novgorod, or Lower Newtown, is not to be confused with another Novgorod, and this one is near St. Petersburg, and to give it its full name is Veliki Novgorod, or Novgorod the Great. And it's this Novgorod which will play an important part in some of the early narrative episodes that are coming soon. Okay, so hopefully that quick overview, along with the maps on the website, will provide you with a little bit of helpful background when we get going on the historical episodes. But, hang on a minute, Damon. That's all well and good, but when are we going to get onto some history? Well, that's a fair point, but, and this brings me on to the second part of the episode, it's Russia's geography that has ultimately shaped the way she has acted in the past and continues to act today. So let's look at the geopolitics of Russia and some of the reasons why. And I'm indebted here to one of the best books I've read in a long while. It's called Prisoners of Geography and it's by uh, Tim Marshall. And it is a superb study, in my opinion, of how geography impacts and constrains different countries of the world. I mean, there's a chapter, obviously, which I've drawn on uh, about Russia, but you can read chapters on China, the United States, the EU. It really is fascinating, something that opened. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My eyes. But there's a word of caution before I start. There are elements of geopolitical theory which can come across as being a bit tenuous. And there is another point of view, initially put forward by Carl Sauer, a University of Berkeley cultural geographer, 
who in 1925 asserted that the focus of any geographical study should concentrate on, on the cultural landscape rather than the purely geographical. But if we go back to the first political entities or proto-Russian states, Novgorod and Kievan Rus, situated in today's northwest Russia and Ukraine respectively, in mainly flat land with no coastline and few navigable rivers, we can see that they were bordering on being potentially indefensible. And what's worse, to the east you've got the aggressively expanding Mongol Empire, which Kievan Rus certainly had knowledge of, and in the 13th century the Mongols decided to expand further, invading the territories of the Rus and hanging around in one shape or another for over 200 years. But the Rus, or Rusians, bided their time and eventually managed to chip away and wear the Mongols, or the Tatars as they called them, down, re-establishing themselves this time via a new political entity centred around Moscow, and often referred to as Muscovy, which incidentally is derived from the Latin term Moscovia. Now, historians have debated the long-term influence of Mongol rule on Rus or Rusian society. And they've been blamed for the destruction of Kievan Rus, allowing the breakup of the ancient Rus nationality into three components, modern-day Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, and the introduction of the concept of Oriental despotism. But then, on the other hand, historians also credit the Mongol regime with the introduction of several key benefits, as during and following the occupation, Muscovy developed its efficient postal road network, census and fiscal systems, and its military organisation. So who knows, good or bad, but rest assured this is something that we will look at in further detail when we get to this period of history. So Muscovy sets about expanding, and under its leaders, and the key ones were Ivan III, or Great, and his grandson, Ivan IV, or Terrible, it moves its boundaries east, south and north, gaining its first useful port on, the first, on at first the Caspian Sea, or perhaps not that useful because the Caspian Sea doesn't actually lead anywhere, and later on in the Black Sea, which is perhaps a bit more useful. So at this point, Russia has consolidated and grown, but it's still a hostage to its geography, and it's left the back door open, and it will continue to leave the back door open, mainly because, as we've seen, there is no geographical back door, as all of the next invasions come from the West. Starting with the Polish and Lithuanian Commonwealth in 1605, the Swedish Empire in 1708, Napoleon and the Grand Armée in 1812, and then we have the Crimean War, although, I mean, although this was instigated by Western powers, uh, you could argue that it came directionally from the South, but that's a moot point, in 1853. And of course, both of the 20th century's world wars. And without overstating the point, but I guess that's exactly what I am doing, this is repeated ad nauseum, mainly because of Russia's geography, and in particular, the Eastern North European plain, which makes it so difficult to defend. Ironically though, it's that same geography mixed in with the often harsh climate that has played a major part 
and ensuring that none of these Western invasions has ever led to a long-term occupation. But none of that has stopped Russia's leaders, past and present, from fretting about it happening again. And although unlikely, their view is that the next invasion... Now, I'm going to pause here, because I think this is one of those tenuous bits of geopolitical theory. I don't seriously think that anyone is seriously thinking of invading Russia anytime soon. You never know, but I doubt it. It's more likely to be a gradual chipping away of traditional Russian spheres of influence. And this could work, just particularly as for the last 25 years, they've been without the massive buffer zone afforded them by the Soviet Union and the former Warsaw Pact countries. And the second major impact of Russia's geography that has hampered it is the lack of true warm water or ice-free ports. As I mentioned earlier, the country has a huge coastline, but most of it is either useless in terms of trade and or too remote. Its Arctic ports, such as Archangel and to a lesser extent Murmansk, can be frozen for months, and even Vladivostok, on the less cold northern Pacific, can be icebound for three to four months of the year. And so it has only one year-round warm water port, Sevastopol, which is effectively in a cul-de-sac of the Mediterranean on Crimea's Black Sea coast, and all sea traffic has to pass through the narrow Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, which, both past and present, have been under Ottoman and Turkish control. Now, historically, this lack of warm water ports has made naval security and trade massive points of concern, as it meant that Russia was always dependent on other nations for trade, and at the very real threat of invasion or blockade, from a foreign naval power. And if you don't think that warm water ports are that important, one of the key reasons for Russia's fairly recent occupation of the Crimea was to continue its access to Sevastopol, which up until then had been utilised via a lease agreement with Ukraine, which was seen as being under threat. And finally, there is another geographical historical impact to consider. And this is another irony, because in its desire to make itself defensible by expanding, mainly to the east, back in the 16th century, a significant section, approximately 20% of Russia's relatively small for the country's size and decreasing population of around 146 million, are not Russian. It's estimated that there are over 180 different ethnic groups present in Russia today. I say estimated. Someone must know the exact answer, but different sources give different numbers, so I've gone with 180. And whilst the present-day regime has managed to keep any nationalistic dissent or potential breakaways under control, some observers believe that particularly in the East and in Siberia, Moscow's influence could well be on the wane and Beijing's could be quietly rising. So let's try and wrap all of that up. I called this episode the caged bear for two main reasons. One, and fairly obvious, the bear, it's often used as a symbol of and for Russia and the Russians. Unpredictable, angry, cumbersome, and yet at the same time strong, proud and powerful. And two, caged, because it seems to me that that is just the way it has often acted in the past and still does to this day. Rattling the bars, making a nuisance of itself, less now via conventional methods and increasingly using technology and perhaps nerve agents, acting tough, 
but never quite being able to shake off the fact that it is a hostage to its own geography, history, and increasingly its geopolitics and demographics. So next time you read about Russia in the news, you can probably just hear uh, the bear's cage rattling. Either something to do in eastern Ukraine, the Caucasus or the Middle East, or allegedly interfering in foreign elections, or trying to silence interior oppositions. Or it could just of course be fake news. Or more likely, it could be that it just can't help itself. Okay, I'm going to leave it there for this week. Next time we'll be looking at the prehistory and antiquity of Russia and trying to get some perspective on over two million years. Wish me luck. Until then, look after yourself, keep your head down and I'll see you soon.